verse 15. Uh, we covered half of it last week. We'll cover the second half this week. But before we, uh, before we open God's word, um, would you pray with me? Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we come to you this morning, Lord, it is our chief desire to exalt you, that you would be glorified in our hearts and our minds. And Father, because of that, you would be glorified even through our lives, the things we say, the things we do, the way we live within our homes, the way that we parent, the way that we work in our vocations. Lord, let everything be changed and transformed because of the way that you are working in us. And Father, as we submit ourselves this morning to your word, it's our prayer, God, that you would change us. God, that you would grip our hearts and our minds and shape us. And Father, that you would, um, that you would lead us in the truth of your word to understand it, to live it. And so, Father, as we open your word today, may you speak to us through your Holy Spirit's presence. Illuminate our minds, we pray, O God. Increase our love for your word. Give us eyes to see and minds to, to comprehend. And Lord, I pray that you would anoint my lips, anoint my words. May they be as your words, Father. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Last week, we asked the question, how do we pray? And in asking that question, we noted a couple of things. We noted that authentic private prayer shapes authentic public prayer. And we noted that there's a right way to pray and there's a wrong way to pray. And Jesus is teaching us the right way to pray. How do we pray? And so the Lord's Prayer, as we often refer to it in Matthew chapter 6, it is a prayer of Jesus teaching. It's a prayer that Jesus teaches to his disciples on how we ought to pray. And so before we go any further, I want you to follow along as I read in verse 5, beginning in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your inner room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard because of or for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For if you forgive others their trespasses, and your heavenly, fa- your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither, your, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I just want to pause kind of in the beginning here and mention that between verse 13 and 14, some of your tra- Bible translations may have in bracket uh, the phrase that we often say at the end of the Lord's Prayer, especially when we even say it here. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Earliest manuscripts don't include that portion of the Lord's Prayer. In fact, it doesn't surface in manuscripts until about 150 years after the establishment of the church and after Jesus' word. So some manuscripts in Greek literature, some Greek manuscripts do have that phrase, but they're later manuscripts. The point that I want to say, well, then why do we say it? Well, we add it on the end of the prayer because in our understanding, and as we've heard it, even traditionally, uh, it, it finishes the prayer. It's kind of a conclusion for So it's not wrong to say that. Uh, it's not wrong to add that on to the end of the prayer. It's not like we're, we're adding to God's word if we do that, okay? That's not what's happening. Uh, it simply fits. Traditionally, we, uh, we, we understand that, uh, that saying that phrase at the end of the Lord's Prayer, it's not wrong. It just kind of helps to close out the prayer as we tend to close prayer, especially in our culture. And so that's why I continue to say uh, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, but I just wanted to give you that caveat and uh, because I'm, I'm not going to preach on that particular section, uh, so I want to say that from the beginning. But let us go back to uh, just be reminded and to remember in verses 5 through 8 where we came from last week. And in verses 5 through 8, Jesus is confronting the right motive in prayer. He's speaking about praying rightly. What is the motive when it comes to prayer? What motive should we have? And so Jesus assumes, number one, that his disciples will pray to God in the same way that he assumes his disciples will give to the needy, right? And so there are three implications that we noted about a motive in prayer. And the first implication is that prayer is about communing with God and aligning our hearts with God. We saw that in verse 5. So Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites. They want to stand in the synagogues and the street corners. They want to be seen by others. But they receive their reward then. When they're seen by other. In other words, when they pray in such a way as to uh, pray to an audience of man, they are receiving their reward then. And Jesus is telling us to do the opposite, to go in private and pray before, God, pray before God in private. And when God sees that private prayer and he hears that private prayer, he rewards his children, his disciples. And so prayer is about communing with God and aligning our hearts with his. It is not about appearing holy or righteous or pious before other men. It's about connecting with God, communing with the Father. Secondly, the second implication is the reward of prayer is answered prayer. We see that in verse, we saw that in verse 6. The reward of prayer is answered prayer. The greatest reward of prayer is communion with God. And we made the note that when we petition God through prayer, We must be ready to be used in answering that very prayer that we are petitioning God for, right? So we use the example, God, uh, help me with my my anger issue, right? Well, there's some steps that we're going to have to take in order for God to help us with anger issues. Our our Father, help me with, uh, with with this temptation, this sin in my life. Well, there's some things we might have to do with renewing our mind in order to help see that prayer answered. Not that God is not powerful and able to work and give us deliverance. 
But there are steps that we as believers, as disciples, have to take where we are actually renewing our mind. We are seeking to be changed and transformed at the same time that we're praying this. So the point is that when we pray these petitions before the Lord, that we might actually be involved in also answering these prayers. So we realize that God doesn't always answer prayer in the way that we want Him to. In fact, it may be that God's no to my petition is God's yes to His good and pleasing and perfect will in my life. Thirdly, gaining a hearing with God isn't determined by the length of our prayers, but by the nearness of our hearts and minds to His. If we saw that in verses 7 and 8, the word Father, it implies something. It implies sonship. It implies relationship. It implies lordship. And so we can take confident comfort in knowing that God knows what we need before we ask Him. Verse 8, right? Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Simply put. But why do we pray then? Well, because God desires to have that communion with us. And in praying to God, in coming to God, we're actually agreeing with God that He knows what is best for us. And we're coming to Him as a child comes to their mother or comes to their father asking. God takes great delight when His children come to Him asking Him in prayer. And when we pray, we're actually agreeing with God for His will in our lives and agreeing with God's will in the lives of those for whom we intercede. We had that helpful quote from Joni Erickson Tata. Sometimes God allows what He hates to accomplish what he loves. And so we understand that when we're praying, we're actually agreeing with God for his will to be accomplished. But then lastly, how, do we, how we pray reflects the character of God. So as we think about where we came from last week, we realize that the way that we pray to God reflects how we view God. And so what Jesus is cautioning, again, cautioning us against is hypocritical prayer. And what he's exhorting us to is authentic private prayer. Jesus isn't condemning. He's not all out condemning public prayer. But what he is teaching us is that when we come to God in prayer, first we must make sure that in coming to God in prayer that we're doing it authentically. And that we're not entering just this mindless speech where we're reciting some prayer that has some magic formula in our lives to bring us into God's presence. As if we could say the Lord's Prayer and simply be in God's presence. That's, that's not what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching here that private prayer actually shapes and forms our life in our public prayer. The irony is that many people approach the Lord's Prayer in this way. In sort of a, a, a vain resuscitation. It's empty words that we just kind of go through the words without even knowing what these words actually mean. And it's funny how we can take a prayer that Jesus gave us in order to teach us how to pray rightly and actually use it to pray wrongly or incorrectly. And so that's what Jesus is teaching us here. He's teaching us how to pray. And so the motive of prayer is authentic, mindful communing with God. And then we saw that the model prayer in verses 9 through 15, is concerned with orienting ourselves to God. Orienting ourselves to God. We see this in the first part of verse 9 where he says, Our Father in heaven. And so it's saying who we are praying to, right? We're addressing our Father who is in heaven. Sonship, Lordship, relationship. This is a God who is approachable. 
And he is different. He is different. This is, a, this is a revolutionary concept for the first century Christian, for the early Jew. To be able to approach God and call him Father, and not use this word Yahweh, but to speak in a, uh, this real personal way. Father, our Father in heaven. Um, this speaks to the, the loving, tender care of God. But it also speaks to his omnipotence, his power. His omniscience, his knowledge, his transcendence, that he is he is above and outside of creation and outside of time. He is above it. He is beyond it. But he is imminent. That means he is he is within his creation. He's made himself known to his creation. And so last week we saw that it's Jesus, the son of God, who's actually teaching the disciples how to come to God, Yahweh, the father and to pray to the father in this communicable way. Because God has made himself known to mankind. And Jesus himself is the revealer of God the Father. And so what he's teaching us is that Jesus himself has come, made the Father known to us. And by making the Father known to us, he has become knowable. God has become knowable. He's not some far off deity that is removed from our lives but like a father engaged in the life of his child or a mother engaged in the life of her child. God the Father is engaged in the life of his children. He's accessible. And so when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he said, when we say our Father in heaven, we are communing with the all-powerful, all-knowing, above all yet known God of creation. The one who's created in ordered the cosmos and everything in it, but the one who also knows every intimate detail about your life and wants to be involved in your life and wants you to have relationship with him and commune with him. And so Jesus says, we can come to the Father in this way. He is the Father. He is the loving Father. Jesus is the one who makes that way, that entrance, that entry point into the Father's presence. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16, write it down, go back and read it if you, if you missed last week and, and see how he is the high priest, is the one who actually identifies with us and gain, gives us entrance into the, the Father's presence. We say not only do we orient ourselves with God, to God, but secondly, remember, we, we come and we praise God. Bill Mounts gives these three categories, uh, scholar Bill Mounts gives these three categories for the Lord's Prayer, that we orient ourselves to God, that we come praising God, and then thirdly, we come petitioning God. And so, verse 9, the second half of that verse, uh, where he says, hallowed be your name, this is part of praising God. We ask the question, what does it mean to hallow God's name? And if you weren't here last week, uh, you don't, maybe you don't know, but hallowing God's me- name means actually to set his name apart. It means to reference God as holy and to treat God's name as sacred. And this is saying, may you not be treated as profane, but may you be set apart. And it means to give glory to God. And so he says, hallowed be your name. We connect that, that verse, uh, the last part of verse 10 there, on earth as it is in heaven, to the end there of that petition, this praise, hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. And the idea is, how is God's name hallowed in heaven? Well, perfectly. Therefore, it ought to be hallowed on earth perfectly. And actually, what we're doing when we pray this and say this and declare this praise is we are saying to God, through my life, 
through the life of my church as we pray this corporately, through our lives together, we want your name to be holy, to be hallowed, to be set apart, to be sanctified. And so when we pray this, we're praying, God, please act within me and through me so that my life accurately reflects who you are, your character, your work. And so that way we might impact others around us that God would work through us in our actions, in our words, in our corporate life together. And so that's quickly the first part of the Lord's Prayer, orienting ourselves to God and then praising God. But then thirdly, I want us to see this morning and the rest of our time be focused on petitioning, petitioning God. And we see this in verses 10 through 13, petitioning God. And so the first petition is for God's sovereign rule. Look at what he says in verse 10. Your kingdom come, what we sang a few moments ago, right? Your kingdom come. And we can add to the end of this, because remember, that last line in verse 10, on earth as it is in heaven, modifies those three. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So your kingdom come, on earth as it is in heaven. What does this petition mean, though? Well, Andrew spoke about it a few moments ago a little bit. But we begin by, I think, defining God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is, is God's sovereign rule and reign in the lives of his people. God's rule and reign, the sovereign rule and reign of God in the lives of his people. That's God's kingdom. And so there, there's both a present and a future aspect to God's kingdom. In one sense, we know and experience the reality of God's kingdom in the here and now. Christ has come and he's victoriously triumphed over sin and death. And because of our spiritual birth in Christ, we are freed from bondage to sin. And we're freed to walk as righteous children of God. This is part of God's kingdom coming in the here and now. In this present reality, this petition as we pray, it teaches us, it, it presses us to consider How is God ruling and reigning in my life right now? How is he ruling and reigning in our lives? Friend, is there is there an area in your life where you could say God is not ruling and reigning? Where he's not in charge? Where you've not submitted to his authority? Is that a reality presently for you? What Jesus is saying as we pray this prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's kingdom existing right now in heaven? Perfectly with perfect authority. The angels submit. They praise God kneeling at the throne of God. How does our life emulate or reflect that reality on earth as it is in heaven? And so hear the prayer that Jesus is teaching his disciples. May we pray such a prayer, seeking to bring our lives under submission to God's rule. You see, when we petition God in this way, we're actively praying, God, I submit to your rule and reign in all of my life. There's a future aspect to God's kingdom as well, when Christ will return and he will usher in God's kingdom in fullness. 
And this is the day that we as Christians long for. We want for this day. This is why Paul and John pray this prayer, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come now. In that day, we will no longer struggle with sin and suffering and pain and sickness and cancer and death. We'll no longer experience the turmoil and the brokenness of our humanity and the horrid atrocities and the persecution of the saints and genocide. This will be a day when all wickedness will forever be put down. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Whether the knee wants to bow or not, whether the tongue wants to confess or not, what will happen is every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Because it's God's kingdom. And it will come. It has come and it is coming. But there's still a quandary in my mind when I read this verse and consider why is Jesus telling me to pray something that's inevitable? Why why is Jesus telling me to, to pray because God's the sovereign ruler and if God's will cannot be thwarted, then why does Jesus instruct me to pray something that's inevitable? And I think the answer is this. Listen. Hear this, because in praying this prayer, we are aligning our hearts and minds to his. By praying such a prayer, we're agreeing with God and we're willingly placing ourselves in submission to his rule. And in praying such a prayer, we're praying for actually the reverse of the curse of sin in our lives. We're saying that we submit the brokenness of our humanity to God's rule so that he shapes us and forms us into the image of Christ. And so by this, we're learning what it means. Get this. We're learning what it means to be truly human. Just as Christ modeled true humanity through submitting his will perfectly to the fathers, this means throwing off the sin of Adam, and putting on the better way of Christ. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a declaration then. That in the here and now, we're living for God's pleasure and we're not living for our own pleasure. It's a declaration that we're longing for liberation from the destructive ravages of sin in this present world. And so he says, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. So let me ask you, believer. What's God's will for your life? What is God's will for your life? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God for you. Your sanctification. Jesus says this very thing in John 17.17 when he's praying the high priestly prayer. He says, Lord, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Our second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Jesus says we should petition God for his redemptive mission in the world to be accomplished through our daily lives. You see, the will of God is our growth and sanctification. And as we grow in Christ, 
we image Christ to the world. And so disciples who pray as Jesus teaches are praying, Lord, may your will be done on earth as in heaven through me, with me, and then spread through me to those around me who I can influence for your glory. Make me then into the kind of person, God, that you want me to be. Shape my character. Form my life. I submit my will to yours. Empower me to live for you. You see, God's kingdom comes wherever his will on earth is being done as it is in heaven. And the greater degree by which we live in submission to his will, listen, the brighter God's kingdom reflects in the world through us, through the church, through the believer. And so we sanctify his name. We submit to his rule and we submit to his will, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus not only teaches us to petition God for his rule, that it would be evidence through our lives, but that we're to petition God for daily sustenance. That we're to petition God for daily sustenance, for his provision. And so in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. This is declaring our dependence on God for his provision. It's for food, but it's also for physical, even spiritual protection. You know, it's interesting to consider the difference between an agrarian society and an industrialized, an industrialized society like ours. So when Jesus is speaking this to his disciples, they're living in an agrarian society. But when we read it today, we read it in an industrialized society. And so when we think about trusting in God for provision, we don't necessarily think about trusting in God for today or for tomorrow's needs. We begin thinking about our needs for 10 years down the road or 15 years down the road or even 20 years down the road. We begin thinking about what we're putting into the 401k or the IRA, right? Or what our stock, stock portfolio looks like. We begin thinking about all these different kind of things. We're tempted to go there. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to plan for the future. But listen, if planning for the future becomes the source and place of our trust, then we've missed a vital component of our faith that Jesus is calling us to. Those things which we so often put our trust in and, and have security in in this life are actually a mirage. So the question is, are, are you putting your trust for provision in God or for your daily needs? Are you putting it in God or are you putting your trust for provision in the stock market, right? Those who trusted in the stock market under Bernie Madoff were sad. Are, are we putting our trust in real estate ventures? Are we putting our trust in a good job? What happens if the oil industry tanks? Are we putting our trust in other things, or are we putting our trust in God? Are we putting our trust in our own abilities? Or are we putting our trust in God? You see, when we consider asking God and praying to God, give us this day our daily bread, we are asking him to provide for our daily needs, are we not? And I think it becomes exponentially more difficult when we have enough money in the bank to provide for the daily needs on our table, right? I'm not saying that I have all the answers, but what I'm asking is, how do we balance this lifestyle and culture of today with the petition to God for his daily provision? 
are there implications? Are there implications we need to consider regarding where our daily trust is placed? Are there implications that we need to consider for uh, for God and and what are in in relation to God and what he is providing for us on a daily basis? Does our current lifestyle inhibit our daily dependence on God? If so, how might you become more aware of your daily need and dependence on him? I don't have the answer to the question, but I want to suggest that we would learn from biblical history. Learn what happened to the nation of Israel when they settled in the promised land and they began eating from vineyards that they didn't plant and drinking from wells that they did not dig and living in homes that they did not build. And then they became prosperous. They became fat. And what ended up happening to that nation? They ended up worshiping the gods of that nation. So I want us to hear a caution somewhat here and take heed that we don't forget God and begin worshiping the created over the creator, that we are daily coming to God, confessing our need for him and casting our cares upon him, saying and telling and asking God to provide for our daily need. And so what Jesus is teaching us to pray quickly goes beyond the food on the table. It's a prayer for all our needs of physical life, of food and clothing and shelter. And I think living to learn within our means is is a vital part of the Christian life. And so he says, petition God for our daily sustenance. But also petition God for forgiveness of sins. So in verse 12, he says, forgive us our debts, right? As we forgive our debtors. Now, there's always the debate when we say the Lord's Prayer, do we say debts or do we say trespasses? So the word really means the same. They both mean sin as an offense against God and it kind of speaks to the same concept here. Both of them are accurate because they because sin incurs debt that we owe. And all sin is against God and forgiveness must first come from God. And so the question remains... Does Jesus mean that we're requesting God's forgiveness of our sin in proportion to our forgiveness of others? Or does he mean that forgiveness of our debts, that we're to have, we're asking for forgiveness of our debts while we're in the process of forgiving others their debts? The answer to the first question is no, we're actually petitioning God to forgive us of our debts with a greater degree of mercy than we forgive others. How are we to understand, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us or who are in debt to us? I think verses 14 and 15 kind of help clarify our understanding or maybe confuse us more about what Jesus is speaking to. In verse 14, he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. I think Jesus here is speaking about this doctrine of reciprocity, of owing to someone what you are given. But what Jesus isn't doing, I don't think he's speaking about our eternal security. In fact, there are really two views on forgiveness here as it relates to our sin and salvation. In the first sense, our sin is forgiven at our conversion to Christ. Christ has reconciled us through the new covenant of his blood and he's paid the redemption price to heal our sin-sick souls. 
And so this isn't what Jesus is speaking about here. It's as believers in Christ, our sin has already been paid for. And to suggest then that we might lose our salvation or that our salvation, our eternal security, might be in jeopardy, I think it's theologically inconsistent with Christ's sacrifice. But the second view, I think, involves realizing that we're in this ongoing battle against the flesh. And the flesh is naturally bent and inclined towards sin. And so when we fall to temptation and we sin, our sin erects a wall, a relational wall between God and us. And so while withholding forgiveness of others is sinful, and it's inconsistent with being a new creation in Christ, it doesn't affect our eternal security. But it does affect our ongoing relationship with God. And Peter even addresses this in the marital relationship in 1 Peter 3, 7 when he speaks to husbands. And he says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. So showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Scripture speaks to this truth that abiding sin hinders our relationship with with God. It hinders our prayer life. And if our prayers are to be effective, church, believer, if our prayer is to be effective, then we must be a forgiving people, a people who demonstrate forgiveness in the same way that God has forgiven us in Christ. And so if we're a kind of people who refuse to forgive others, we'll be the kind of people who don't know even how to ask God for forgiveness. If you have a forgiveness problem with another person, then you have a forgiveness problem with how God forgives you. Ultimately, if I refuse to forgive a person over a long period of time, there comes a point, though, that I need to ask the question, was I ever really forgiven by God? I want to give us a few hooks kind of to hang on with regard to forgiveness, because Forgiveness is, it's a difficult issue when you really get down to it. I mean, it's hard. In fact, that's the first implication. Forgiveness is hard. When we consider forgiveness, it's a painful process. But forgiveness is more about you than it is about the other person, the one who offended you. You see, when we've been wounded deeply, or even someone that we love has been wounded deeply, Maybe it's through criticism, maybe it's through character assassination, maybe it's through abandonment, maybe it's through accusations, uh, maybe it's through breaking of trust and confidence, maybe it's through persecution, right? We could go on and on, even through the pain of death. We struggle with forgiving that person. And I think the more heinous the act, the more difficult it becomes, right, to exercise forgiveness. Uh, So forgiveness is hard. And sometimes forgiveness takes a long time to arrive at, especially, especially when it's a heinous act because it breaks trust. But let me encourage you, the reality, if if you're there and you've been struggling with forgiveness for a long time, I want to push you a little bit and, 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 and encourage you to Keep pursuing forgiveness. Keep coming before God, seeking to be at a place where you're ready to forgive the person who has offended you. The reality that we're struggling with forgiveness, I think, in and of itself is a healthy sign. It's a healthy sign because we're aware of what Scripture calls us to. We're aware of the Christian responsibility. Because 
forgiveness is a vital component of the Christian life. Psalm 103, 1 through 4, the psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, right? Who heals all your diseases, who redeems our lives from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Forgiveness is a hard word. But as we see how God in Christ has forgiven us, it frees us to forgive one another and others. And so we must realize that forgiveness is, it's a supernatural work. And the reason is because forgiveness changes us. You ask, how does forgiveness change us? I think forgiveness changes us because we learn what it means to image Christ to others. Because as we forgive others, we're forgiving for hurt, right? Ways that we have been hurt. And by forgiving others, we're extending grace and mercy to them. And in doing so, we're actually imaging Christ to the world around us. We're imaging Christ to those whom we are forgiving. And thirdly, knowing God's forgiveness frees us to forgive others. You see, if if you know and understand the depth by which God has forgiven you in Christ, then the love of Christ in God will compel you to do the hard work of forgiving others. So as Jesus prays in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We talked about that meaning, recognizing just how impoverished we are before a holy, righteous God, just how sinful we are. And so recognizing that and seeing that God has actually exercised this gracious and merciful forgiveness toward us, that then helps us to have a perspective for how we forgive others. So let me ask you, are you you harboring bitterness? Are you withholding forgiveness from someone? Let me exhort you and encourage you that today is the day that you need to begin the journey of forgiveness if you've not already. If you're in the process of forgiving someone for a way that they've hurt you deeply, I would encourage you not to slow down, but to endure and to continue seeking to have forgiveness and to be released from the bondage of bitterness and not to allow bitterness to have a place in your life. And finally, we see the petition for deliverance, petition for deliverance. Jesus prays, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So here's the big question. Does God lead us into temptation? Does God lead us into temptation? If we're ready to say God doesn't lead us into temptation, then why in Matthew 4 does he tell us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? And furthermore, why does Jesus tell us to petition God not to lead us into temptation if God, in fact, does lead us into temptation? I want to point out James 1.13, where James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But God does test us, right? Right? We even see in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, 
Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith develops endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if you lack wisdom on how to walk through this trial, ask God and he will give to you generously and without reproach. And so it seems to be this connection between temptation or testing and trial and coming and praying and asking God for deliverance. The way John Stott says it is the probable answer is that the prayer is more that we may overcome temptation than that we may avoid it. Perhaps we could paraphrase, he says, the whole request as do not allow us so to be led into temptation that it overwhelms us, but rescue us from the evil one. So behind these words that Jesus gave us to pray are the implications that the devil is too strong for us, that we are too weak to stand up to him, but that our heavenly father will deliver us when we call upon him. I think the main point of verse 13, when Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The main point is that we cannot stand against Satan's work in our own strength. Realize it. Jesus, the one who comes, the son of God, who comes in both fullness of humanity and fullness of deity. He comes and he is led by the spirit into the wilderness to battle against Satan, reclaiming the victory that the first Adam lost to fully submit his will in perfect obedience to the will of the father. And so what Jesus is telling us to do, he's telling us to cry out to God, saying that we are dependent on God for for protection from Satan. We might say that verse 11 beckons us to come to God for physical protection, but verse 13 beckons us to come to God for spiritual protection. Think about what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6 regarding the armor of God. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so what Jesus is telling us is that we are to come to God and to cry out to him in dependence on God to protect us from the work of Satan. Believer, listen, you can't battle temptation to sin in and of your own strength. You cannot battle against the work of Satan. And so that's why Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a call for us to cry out to God, to petition God for his delivering work in our lives, for his strengthening, for his empowerment. Does that describe you today, believer? Are you battling against the flesh, against the spirit of Satan, against the wickedness of this day? Are you crying out to God, asking for his protection, his provision daily, depending upon him? Is there an area in your life where you're holding back from exercising forgiveness? Maybe for you it looks like just God's not even in control. You've not even surrendered your life to God. You can't say your kingdom come, your will be done 
at this point in your life. And maybe for you today, it looks like making that good confession. Where you first, for the first time, say, your kingdom come, your will be done. I, I want that to be in my life. If that describes you this morning, I, know, I want you to know that I'll be around and I would love to speak to you about what that means after the service. If, if this morning you need someone to encourage you and to pray with you about implementing some of this in your life or anything in your life, or if there's a particular area that you need encouragement in, I, I want you to know that I, I'd, be, I'd love to speak with you about it and pray with you about it. I'll be down front here this morning. If, if there's something that you just need prayer for, I would love to pray for you. So come forward and let me pray for you. You respond this morning as the Lord leads you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we declare, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let that will be done expressly through our lives. God, let us image Christ to the world. And Father, we do pray, forgive us our debts, our transgressions, our sin, as we forgive those who have sinned against us, even though it's hard, God. Strengthen us to do this hard work of forgiveness. And oh, Father, lead us not into temptation. God, guard us from the hand and the work of the evil one of Satan, our adversary. Deliver us from evil. For, Father, we need you desperately. And we pray this in the strong and the powerful name of Christ our Savior. Amen.